Uh, Genesis 12, um, 1 through 20 is, is where we are, which is basically the whole chapter. Let's go ahead and uh, read that. Let me pray and we'll, we'll dive in. Thanks for your patience. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I'll make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran and Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. And then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abraham's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's, um, let's pray. God, we rejoice this morning that we have a God who doesn't leave us to ourselves. I mean, this text, clear as day, both Abram and his wife, Sarai, need your rescue. Both, we could say, victim and victimizer. Both those struggling with um, self-orientation and uh, exploiting others and those who have been exploited. God, we need you to rescue us from ourselves. We need you to rescue us from one another. We need you to rescue us from sin, from Satan's sin and death. We need you to bring in the blessing. You promised. God, today I, I pray that you would use our time in your word as we consider these things. To exalt your son. I pray, God, that Jesus would show up in this Old Testament text in such a way that we would see our Savior. We would repent and believe for the first time or afresh. And we would find ourselves, too, rescued in him and, and, and turned outward towards others with compassion, concern, love. Not selfish manipulation. Exploitation. 
Use me, Jesus, even in my weakness. I trust you to do that in your name. Amen. Um, let me just get this uh, off my chest right up front here. I am probably going to say Abraham many times, even though in our text he's currently uh, still just Abram. Uh, we know in about Genesis 17, uh, God changes Abram's name and Sarai's name to Abraham and Sarah. Same people. Forgive me. Even as I read, I was saying Abraham. Uh, so it's going to happen. Just wanted to get that out there right up front. But let me explain to you first. You might be wondering, if you have been with us for a little while, why we're not in Luke's gospel this morning. Um, and really, I don't have significant reason for that, other than that I was reading through the Old Testament. My devotions have been in Genesis. And as I came to Genesis 12, it's just like the sermon unfolded before my eyes. Um, there are times when I'll read the scriptures, and like you, and I, at least I hope I'm not alone in this, I'm confused, I, I'm struggling, I have no idea what's being said. Sure, I went to seminary, but I'm going, what in the world is happening here? God help me. And then there are other times where I will read, and it's just like things just start to make sense. The verses kind of divide. Main points emerge. The gospel uh, becomes a little bit brighter. My heart for uh, Jesus, his mission, the church, uh, just gets a little bit uh, more inflamed and engaged. And as that happened, um, probably about maybe 10 days ago or so, when I was reading this, you know, I just thought, God, what? What is that? Is this something that you want me to share? And, and um, as I kind of prayed and considered, I, I felt like, like going for it. So I hope you're OK with that. One of the big passions that I have as your pastor is that we would learn how to read uh, the Old Testament in particular, um, that we'd learn to read our Bibles. I recognize that um, really as a church, uh, we are only going to be as healthy as our personal private times are with Jesus. Um, I don't care how many people we get involved in missions and ministries and evangelism if we aren't the kind of people that know how to be alone with God and meet with Jesus in the scriptures. And I realize one of the biggest things that can keep us from that sometimes is the fact that the Bible is confusing. The two-thirds of the Bible, namely the Old Testament, which is just lost on us. It seems irrelevant, and I don't know where... You know, I, I like Jesus when he shows up in the New Testament. That's good. But all this seems confusing. And so when I get a chance to take us into the Old Testament, like I did a couple weeks ago with uh, Genesis 8 and 9 and Noah, or now, as we'll see with Abraham, I, I feel like I like to show you these things because I want you to see how all of Scripture directs us to Jesus and the gospel and how all of Scripture holds together so that he can, he can meet with you wherever you are. Uh, in your Bible reading, uh, let's let's uh, dive in. I'll I'll just simply um, share with you kind of where I'm going to be headed here up front, so that the uh, the Type A's among us will feel good about this. Um, first heading is just simply going to be the the blessing promise. That's verses one through nine. Then we're going to see the blessing distorted, verses ten through sixteen, uh, and then finally. Uh, the blessing realized, verses 17 to 20. Obviously, I can't cover all this in detail like I uh, often do, um, so we're just going to try to hit certain points along the way. But first, the blessing promised, verses 1 through 9. Um, I think I've said this before, but it's worth saying again because I think it um, it confronts the cultural narrative that we often hear um, when it comes to Christianity and the Christian God. Um, I think, if I'm not mistaken, typically what people feel when they kind of think about the Christian God, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship, they kind of feel like, all right, he's the guy that when he shows up, the party stops. That we're all having a good time and then the Christian, the Christian God comes into the mix and it's like the, the DJ kind of skips uh, you know, on the rec- with his record there, the music kind of screeches to a halt. Things get awkward. Things get quiet. Things get a little bit more uncomfortable. Well, now we got to get serious. He's always talking about sin. And he's always talking about judgment. And then he's talking about hell. And why can't he just get off my back? Killing my joy. Stopping my party. 
That's how I think we often feel about God. And I think that's the way that Satan moves, even in Genesis 3, right? It's really, did God say that? Because he's withholding from you. He don't want you to be happy. Like, I'm sure my boy feels this right now. I just put up a bunk bed in our uh, in my daughter's rooms. And uh, uh, and uh, now, you know, his favorite thing to do is to sneak in there and climb up the ladder to the top where he can get the fan going because he can touch it. And, uh, you know, or pick off things off the ceiling like the stars. And he's leaning over this. I'm going, listen, son, I'm sorry to rain on your parade, but you're not going to get to do this. I love you too much. You're going to fall and crack your head. You think it's great. It's not great. You think he likes that? No, he screams. He hates me. I'm killing his I'm killing his joy. I'm ending his party. Exactly. But I love him. And one of the things that we realize is when we kind of follow the story of line of the scriptures, uh, God is not the one who puts an end to the party. God's actually the one who kind of try, is trying to get the party started, trying to get the real joy, the real blessing, the real thing going. That's why um, when you look at the book of uh, Genesis, Genesis 1, the story of creation in particular, um, we see that God actually creates to bless. It's like he is uh, uh, full of joy in himself and this kind of fountain overflows into what is creation. And the whole thing kind of ascends to this climax in uh, verses 27 and 28 of Genesis 1 where, where it says this, So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created him. And then God blessed And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. God did not withhold. It should be argued from this that God really is setting the stage for one epic ever expanding party. He just says, listen, I have given you everything that you need in me. Now go, you know, fill the earth with this, spread the blessing abroad. That's the story of creation. And and, and in reality, as you follow Genesis, what you see is that what stops the party is when we kick God out of it. That's when the blessing ceases. That's when things spiral out of control. That's when all of a sudden we're seeing things like bitterness and anger and vengeance and murder and adultery and affairs and sexual exploitation and other things like that. It's not because God's in the part. It's because we kicked him out. That's the world without God in it. God is actually setting the stage for one epic, ever-expanding party. You might say it's the kind of party that you don't feel sick after. The kind of party that you don't need four Advil and a day in your bed to get over. There's an indication something is wrong with that party. Right? All along the way, though, we have kind of kicked God out. God shows himself to be reluctant to leave us to ourselves and resilient in his pursuit of us. And that's really what we come to in Genesis 12. Um, God is look here. He's basically still pursuing his people, though they have kind of pushed him away. He's still pursuing his creation, though we have pushed him away. He intrudes into this fallen and corrupted world once more. And uh, what is his intention, you might ask? Well, hopefully it's clear by now. His intention is to bless. Look at verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that your name will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You can see his, his, um, 
The driving kind of aim, the motivation behind his intrusion here with Abraham is, I want to bless you and through you I want to bless the world. I want to restore what has been lost. The initial blessing over man and woman, be fruitful and fill. I want to start that, get that in motion again. If I were to sum up the promised blessing here, I would put it like this. I think it's something like, I will make of you a blessed nation for the purpose of blessing nations. So Abram here and later Israel and now the church in Jesus Christ are given this kind of commission to receive the blessing that comes to us from God and then mediate that out to others. To spread the blessing abroad, to get the party Truly started. Now, running underneath all of this, I think, is the question, a couple of questions, really, that um, I want us to consider. And it's largely the reason why I felt led to, to bring this out um, this morning from, this, from Genesis 12. Um, why do you exist? Why are you here? And then the related question to that is, why are others here? Why do other people exist? Now, if on the one hand you exist for God, to know him, to love him, to follow him, to be blessed in relationship with him, well, then it follows that Uh, Other people are here for you to bless and serve and minister to and love from the abundance that you have. But on the other hand, if you have kind of conjured up this idea that in your own mind you are a God, if you will, you are in charge, you are the king, you are the queen, you are what's up. Well, then it follows that other people, you will treat them as if they exist to serve and bless you. You are here for me. And if you didn't catch that memo, I'll be happy to tell you again and again and again in the way that I treat you, the way that I speak to you, what I expect from you, what I do to you. These are going to be the questions that we continually come back to as we carry on in this. What is your fundamental orientation towards other people? Are you here from God for them or are they here for you? That's what God is getting at here in the very beginning. Abram, I'm going to bless you and your people. I'm going to make you a blessing to everyone else. That's why you're here. Um, one thing I should say before we carry on um, regarding this idea of blessing, uh, I thought this was interesting. It, really, when you trace that concept out, what you find out is that largely it's a priestly idea. The idea of blessing and, and pronouncing blessing upon others, bringing blessing to others, it is a priestly function. It is a mediatorial, a priestly idea. In fact, we see this just a few chapters later, Genesis 14, 18, 19. Um, a guy by the name of Melchizedek shows up. He's a pretty uh, mysterious figure. We don't know all that much about him, but we do know he's a priest. And when he comes into contact with Abram, he pronounces a blessing upon him. And as we kind of carry on uh, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, what we see later in Leviticus 9, Aaron Um, The kind of first chief priest as they're just kind of ordaining him and he's getting his his ministry as a priest started. Well, he makes all these sacrifices and all these offerings. This is chapter nine. And at the very end of the chapter, it's like it's been kind of rising to this crescendo. And here's what we see at the very end. uh, Verse 22. Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and he blessed them. After all these sacrifices and offerings and the blessing of the Lord and forgiveness and mercy, he just pronounces blessing upon them. Um, Such a thing is actually explicitly commanded of the priests and things in uh, Numbers 6, 22 through 27, where God basically says, listen, 
Here's what you need to do. I need you to bless my people. He actually gives them kind of a benediction that maybe some of you are familiar with. But for the sake of time, we're not going to go in there. But the idea here, why, why do I go into this? It's because this is what the people of Israel and now the church are supposed to be. This is the posture. This is the stance that we are supposed to have. This is what stands behind texts like Exodus 19, 5 and 6, where God says, listen, you are a kingdom of priests. A holy nation. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, 9, grabs a hold of that same text and says, that's not just Israel, that is the church. That's been realized in the church, that we are a royal priesthood. That we exist to, to call out into the darkness to say, there's light over here and it's marvelous. Get in. That we exist to receive God's blessing and mediate it to the world. Pronounce that blessing. Bring it. That's what he's establishing here in with Abram. But now we need to move to verses 10 through 16 and consider the blessing distorted. The blessing promised now, the blessing distorted. Um, if you're at all familiar with um, New Testament studies, um, one of the things that you've heard, and maybe if you're not, maybe you've even heard it from this pulpit, I can't remember. One of the things that you hear about when you try to understand the New Testament, the structure of redemption, salvation, uh, people talk about the already and the not yet. Raise your hand if you've heard of that. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. The, the already and the not yet. It sounds confusing at first. It's not really that confusing uh, I assure you, you're living in it and experiencing it, whether you put words to it or not. The idea is this. With the arrival of Jesus, Christmas time, which is what we'll be celebrating soon, with the, the first advent of Jesus, um, certain things are set in motion. There are certain things that in his life, death, and resurrection, he accomplishes. This is what we would consider the already. He, 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 he already has established your justification, your forgiveness, all these things, your salvation. He's already victorious in so many ways. And yet, there's this not yetness to it too, right? Like, there's still fires consuming our state. I still am sick. I, I still struggle with sin. Not every enemy is put under his feet. Like it still feels like things are out of control, even though we know he's risen, he's ascended, he's sat down because the work is done. I'm justified. Like judgment day has already happened for me because it happened for me in Christ. Like all these things we know already, and yet there's this tension we have the down payment of the Holy Spirit right now of our inheritance that's to come. And yet, I'm not living in the new heavens, new earth, are you? It's hard. This is why, um, this is why uh, the New Testament speaks of our salvation in such peculiar ways uh, when you really look at the, the whole breadth of it. Um, there are texts that will say, you have been saved. Past tense. We like to use that. When did you get saved? I got saved! Past tense. But then there are other texts in the New Testament that say you are being saved. Present tense. And then there are still more texts that say you shall be saved on a day to come, on the last day. You go, well, which one is it? All the above. It's the already, the not yet. Jesus has secured it. He's accomplished it. He's established it. It is done. And yet, not yet fully consummated and complete. This really is the tension that we feel between the first advent of Jesus and the second. What he's begun in the second will be, will be fully realized. Or what he's begun in the first will be fully realized in the second. That's when every enemy done away with. And this mortal man will put on incorruptibility. Now, why do I go into all that? Because we're not in the New Testament, we're in the Old Testament. I'm glad you asked. Um, I remember there was a time in 
one of my seminary classes where as we were talking about some of these things and I had the idea of the already not yet in my mind and I'm in an Old Testament class and I'm thinking, I'm realizing, oh, interesting. If I had to say what the Old Testament is like, well, let me tell you how I'd put it. If the New Testament is understood within the framework of the already not yet, the Old Testament, it seems to me, can be best understood within the framework of the almost but not quite. The almost, but not quite. I'll show you what I mean. You perhaps remember a couple of weeks ago, this is exactly what we saw with Noah. Um, when we looked at him, and you remember perhaps the story of the flood from uh, Bible stories, or maybe a quilt your mama gave you when you were a kid, or something with animals on it. Uh, God floods the earth. God washes out sinful humanity, but... Noah finds favor in his eyes. So Noah and his family brought into the ark. The whole expectation and anticipation is that, man, God is doing something new. He's regaining what was lost in the fall. And now there's going to be this new humanity, this new creation. And he even tells Noah what he had first told uh, Adam, which is bear fruit and multiply and fill the earth. And we're like, this sounds good. This sounds like a new beginning. And then, like I said a couple of weeks ago, the first thing that, that Noah does, at least it's recorded for us as if Moses is particularly trying to bring this to our attention, is that Noah goes out, plants a vineyard, gets smashed, gets naked, and falls asleep, passes out on the floor. And what we're left at the end of this story is, almost, but not quite. Like I thought it was going to go up from here, and it just, we're right back where we began. Almost, but not quite. Noah, for all of his virtue and his faith and things, needed redemption himself, needed a redeemer himself. He was a picture of something to come, but not it. The same thing we could say of Abraham here in our story. So uh, if you look at like verses 1 through 9, what we see there is it seems like Abram is off to this incredible start. It seems like God is doing this sort of thing again. Where man, now what was lost in Adam is going to be regained in Abram. Look at that. The blessings, all the things we forfeited, the filling the earth and, 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 and bringing this to the nations. God's glory. It's going to happen with this man. Something new is going to take place here. And it looks like he starts off strong. He's building altars to God and he's, he's leaving country and, 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 and kindred and he's, and he's anything that the, the, uh, the ancient people would have been identified by. He left it all for God. The author of Hebrews says he went out not knowing where he was going. Okay, if God told me to go, I don't know what I'm going to do when I get there. I don't know where I'm even going, but I will do it. We say, man, this looks good. Could this be the one to kind of bring in something new? It's going to bring redemption to this fallen world. And we kind of have these anticipations rising. This is the almost side of the framework. But then we come to verses 10 through 16. And we say, not quite. <laughs> not quite. Courageous fear, or I'm sorry, courageous faith turns into cowardly fear in these moments. Let's read these verses, verses 10 through 16 one more time. Now, there was a famine in the land, which was, he was in Canaan at the time. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. 
And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Listen, when I, when I read through this last week and I came to the, um, to verse 13, I nearly choked on my coffee. I'm going to look at it one more time. Just hear this man who's supposed to bring blessing to the world. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. I mean, this is a massive problem. This is why I would refer to this section as the blessing distorted. Abram is to be the one through whom blessing comes to all the families of the earth, and yet he can't even seem to bring that blessing to his own family, to his own bride. You see that? For the sake of his own skin, he's willing to sacrifice his lady. Ah, my pleasure for your pain. My gain for your loss. My comfort, but you go and be subject to the lusts of the Pharaoh. I mean, did you catch verse 16? For her sake, he, Pharaoh, dealt well with Abram. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, servants, female servants, female donkeys. He's getting rich while his wife is getting ravaged. Are you seeing that? That's a problem. That's an outrage. He aborts his priestly call. He abandons the mission of God. He seeks blessing for no one but himself. And brothers and sisters, he's going to do it again in Genesis 20. And then his son, Isaac, is going to do it again to his wife. Now, Rebecca in Genesis 26. Uh, uh, listen, honey, say you're my sister, please. They're going to kill me. If you don't, now, first I was um, so appalled, so disgusted with Abraham here and the thought of how, how could a, a man do this to his lady. But then as often is the case, you've got to love the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit turns that text on me in my moment of judgment. Oh, Abraham, what a loser. It just shines out in like a spotlight on my own soul, exposing so many unsavory things that are here. Um, the thought occurred to me, you know, we, we like to pride ourselves in thinking that it's we who read our Bibles, but truly what happens is that our Bibles start to read us. As we're reading this story, what I start to see is not Abram's sin anymore, but my own tendency towards the same sort of thing. This really is what gets us back to that initial question I said we'd return to, the idea of why am I here? Why are others here? Are, are people here for me? Like I get to manipulate you for my good, and if you are a problem to me, I will sacrifice you, you know, because I am, it's my comfort, my life, my pleasure, my blessing at the expense of your curse. Is that how I operate? Is that my modus operandi? Is that my fundamental orientation? Or is it, man, God has so blessed me, I exist to bless others. I'm here to serve, to sacrifice. It's, it's my pain for your pleasure. Like Paul in Romans 9, and this is so incredible. He says, I wish that I could be accursed. So that my countrymen, the, the, the Israelites, the Jews, could know Jesus. My curse for your blessing. Let it be. Is that how we operate? Is that how I operate? Certainly the implications abound for us here. We could consider how this applies to the way we treat others at work, the way we treat our kids, um, the way we treat our neighbors. But I think the clearest implication obviously has to do with the way that husbands Deal with their wives. And so I thought, I always have too much anyways. I'll just focus in on that one uh, with you. Let me ask you then a question. Gentlemen, do your wives exist for you? 
You might never, never say that. I mean, this is church. You're a good Christian. I would never say that. I know Ephesians 5. But is that what your actions are communicating? Is that what happens behind closed doors in the house? Is it like when we come home, is it kind of like, hey, I've had a long day at work. I expect the house to be clean. I expect the, the dinner to be on the table. Not just one of those, you know, quick, easy uh, microwave meals or pre-made meals. I mean, maybe I'll let a Trader Joe's pre-made meal slide because those are pretty good. <laughs> but something good. I want to know you've been you've been working hard too. And then when I'm done eating that meal, I'm going to sit on the couch. I'm going to watch my sports center. I might just doze off, but you know what? I've earned it. And you can take care of the kids and put them to bed. Thank you very much. Because God knows my day's been harder than yours. Is that the approach? I remember um, listening to, I, I just sent out that message um, to some of the members here because we're you know, receiving elder suggestions and things. And I sent out a message, a sermon by uh, Matt Chandler. He's talking about elder qualifications in First Timothy 3. And he gets to the part about um, the, the, the elder, that this man should uh, manage his household well. And, and Matt Taylor goes off at this point, and I just love what he had to say, because it's, it's this sort of thing. He, he said, listen, guys, okay, the guy who's the type of elder, all right, when he is at work, and you're kind of thinking, oh, I want to come home, and it's going to be kind of me time. He says, no, 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 that's not how this works. If you have a wife, you have kids, let me tell you how it works. Work is just first shift. That's what he says. That's just shift number one. You get home from work, and you better get ready for shift number two. Now you're on the floor with your kids. You're hanging out with your children. You're playing. You're hearing how their day was. You're helping them finish up homework, whatever it may be. Maybe you're helping mama in the kitchen get things ready. For dinner. It's shift number two. You go, okay, whoo, finally we got the kids to bed. Now it's me time. He said, no, no, no. Now shift number three begins. Now it's mama time. Now you sit on the couch and you're, you're beside your bride and you're trying to hear how her day is. You're trying to share in her burdens. Share in her joys. You want to know what happens after that? Bedtime. You say, well, what about me time? I love it. He goes, 5 a.m., that's your time. <laughs> he said, you don't like that? Don't get married. Because that's, that's what it means to be a blessing. To live in such a way that your life exists for others. It is not real manhood in the least to be selfish, self-oriented, exploitative. It's not. Little boys can be selfish. My boy, it, it takes no resilience, no strength to, to, to say yes to everything he wants and to scream when he doesn't get it. But how much strength does it take to lay your life down in love for others, even when it hurts you? That's what men do. You want to improve your manhood. It's not by the the the... the, the the tenor of your voice, the volume, or the way you look when you flex. Improve your manhood, you bleed for your bride. That's where real strength comes out. Now, just to be clear, when I got done listening to that sermon by Matt Chandler, I said, I don't even think I could be an elder anymore. <laughs> oh, gosh. I'm in big trouble. <laughs> but we'll see res rescues is coming for men like me. But it seems to me that this text, and here's another reason why I've, I felt led to, to camp on, on, in Genesis 12 this morning with us. Um, seems to me that this text speaks uh, eloquently into the cultural moment that we find ourselves in as well, right? Um, thinking in particular here of things like the, the Me Too movement, um, that, you know, has put the cause for women's rights and things before us constantly and brought out the reality that men are prone to exploit, uh, to manipulate them as things for their own pleasure. Um, 
Like they're just kind of toys to play with or they're just territory to win uh, or claim. And then they kind of leave them voiceless, collateral damage to the lusts of the flesh. And um, the Me Too movement's kind of brought some of this to the surface, calling men to give an account for this sort of behavior. Hey, you go hang out with Pharaoh. <laughs> I'll get rich on what you're doing. You go over there. I want stuff for me. You know, the kind of thing that would throw our ladies to the curb. Uh, in fact, I was um, saw in the news uh, just a couple weeks ago this very thing, kind of the latest wave. Oops, sorry, this is hard for me. The uh, the latest wave um, in this kind of movement has kind of risen and crashed right here in the Bay Area, right? If you're familiar with um, what's been happening at Google, uh, some of you guys even work there, so I'm sure you are. But uh, you know, uh, an article came out in the New York Times about how Google has handled certain top execs in the past that have uh, been accused of sexual harassment and other things. And um, they would have kind of, they have kind of, at least they did, this has changed now, but they had forced arbitration kind of laws where they'd keep things hush-hush. And then when they found out some of this stuff was credible, well, yeah, we got to have you go, but we're not going to fire you. That would look bad. So how about you resign? And then as you go, we'll give you, one of these guys in particular, gave him like $90 million exit package and all these things. And um, the truth can't come out. And, uh, well, it did in the New York Times article by all these anonymous people that were interviewed and things. And uh, this gave this... Uh, these group of employees and things, in particular women, the courage to kind of start bringing more of this out. And so I think it was November 1st, uh, some 20,000 or ten, tens of thousands, I don't remember how many, uh, walked out around the, the Google campuses around the world uh, in protest of this calling for change and um, demanding that if women have equal dignity, that they be treated with Respect and be given equal rights. And um, the thing that occurs to me, and I'm grateful for it, our culture at least seems to currently be aware that this is wrong. They know that this is not a, a appropriate behavior. That's why we hide it or we cover it up. That's why uh, women are coming out with these things and men are even standing alongside with them. But the problem is, is that we don't know how to truly change it at its source, how to truly make it right. Yes, changes in policy, changes in legislation, uh, government getting in, whatever, the corporation changing certain things. That is good. That can help. But Paul in Romans 13 says uh, something along these lines. The government with its sword, as great as that is, uh, can really only curb or restrain evil. It can penalize the bad, it can incentivize the good, but it cannot change the heart. In other words, here's what you see. I might change my behavior because I don't want the penalty. Oh, that doesn't look good. I don't want that for myself, so I won't do it. I guess I'll try to to be more respectful to ladies in the workplace or whatever it is. Or, oh, I want that incentive, so I guess I will shell out some money to the poor if I can write it off on my taxes, whatever it is. I guess I'll do the good if it's good for me. But you see how in either of those cases, it's still just me. I love me. Life is about me. All of you are here for me. And at the end of the day, me, me, me. Only Jesus can deal with that. And that's where our text is going to go. The blessing realized, verses 17 to 20. The blessing realized. Abram faltered on on this point. Self-interest prevailed. People, even his own bride, were sacrificed uh, for the sake of his own pleasure. And it becomes clear that Abraham, like Noah before him, is not going to accomplish redemption. He himself needs it as well. He needs help and his bride needs rescue. <laughs> and that's exactly what Yahweh is going to do. It's exactly what God does. Let's read verses 17 to 20. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. 
So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Yahweh's not going to let this stand. Yahweh is not going to let uh, people continue to be exploited. Let uh, those who are called to bring blessing continue to uh, orient towards themselves. He knows that Abram and his wife and the nations need rescue. But he also knows, and what we see plainly here, it's an almost not quite situation. Men are never going to be able to do it themselves. The point of this text is it's not going to come from you and I. We don't have the ability to change this. We need that to come in from outside. We need God to do this. We need God to rescue. It's incredible. This text, I had whole pages of notes that I cut out on this. But it's incredible. This text, uh, you can see it, how much it prepares us for and points towards the Exodus. There's a famine in Canaan. They run to Egypt for food. While they're in Egypt, they kind of get tied up with Pharaoh. God sends plagues and brings Abram and Sarah out. Does that sound like anything that's coming up for them? Yes, it sounds like the Exodus. But it also sounds like something else. This story here in Genesis 12 and the story of the Exodus that comes later, both are kind of pointing us, preparing us for pictures of what will come for God's people in Jesus. When God becomes a man, enters into the story to rescue victimizer and victim from sin and all its effects. Abram um, and Jesus are similar on many points, and yet they're different in every way. I want to bring that out for you as we kind of start drawing things to a close. Like Abram, Jesus leaves his father, his land, all he's ever known, to step out in obedience to God, right? He said, listen, God, bring me back to the glory I had with you before the world was. There's this glory that Jesus enjoys with the Father, but he leaves that to come in pursuit of us in obedience to his Father. Sounds like Abraham. But unlike Abram, Jesus will not cower in fear at the threat of persecution or pain or infliction or even death. He will hold firm for the sake of the mission of God and bringing blessing to the nations. Like Abram, Jesus has a bride, the church, you and I. But unlike Abram, he will not ask his bride to sacrifice herself for him. Now, he will lay down himself for his bride. It's crazy. I wonder if you noticed Sarai is, 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 is said to be very beautiful there in verse 11 in another place. In fact, that's the whole reason Abram is nervous about this thing going in. Because Pharaoh's going to see and he's going to want you and then he's going to kill me to get you. You're beautiful. But in spite of her beauty, Abram can't find it in himself to sacrifice for her or protect her. Jesus, on the other hand, looks at us and goes, man, there ain't nothing beautiful there. Covered in sin. Filth. Every one of us, in one degree, is both victim and victimizer. Every one of us, self-oriented, enslaved. And enslaving others. Dead in sin. In a mess. Jesus looks at them and he goes, I could die for that. He dies to wash us up. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. He does not love you because you are without blemish. 
and beautiful. That's not why he pays the great price of his life to get you. It's his love, it's his sacrifice that makes you beautiful. That washes you clean. And adorns you with righteousness and everything that really matters. Abram got rich at his wife's expense. Jesus exchanges in the opposite direction. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So that you by his poverty might become rich. Abram's like, hey, keep the camels coming. Now, maybe he felt guilty. I don't know. But the camels were coming either way. Pharaoh, thank you very much. Tell Sarai I said hi. (laughs) Jesus says, no, no, that's not how this is going to work. I will take your poverty. I will take your chains. I will take your, your loss. And I'll give to you my gain freely. Did you catch that? Did you catch that? How it begins? For you know the grace of our Lord. It's just free, unmerited, favor, gift. And he gives us everything. It's nothing but our filth and our debt in exchange. Like Abraham, Jesus is called to receive and mediate the blessing of God to his people and through them to the nations. But unlike Abraham, his blessing will not be distorted with self-concern. No, what he's going to do, he's going to realize all that God had begun and left incomplete in Abram. All that started to be pictured, all that God is preparing us for, Jesus will realize it. It's this amazing thing. I, you got I mean, you don't see these things when you just kind of read through the scriptures. But all of a sudden, as you're reading other texts, it comes to light. I wonder if you notice, but the end of Luke's gospel. Jesus dies, he rises, and he gathers his disciples together with him, Mount of Olives. Before he ascends, he does one final thing. Do you know what Luke says that it is? He led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Verses 50 and 51 of Luke 24. He realizes all that Abram was called to bring. He is the fulfillment of it. That's why Paul would say in Galatians 3 that what God was... What God was really doing with uh, Abram back there, what God was really uh, 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 proclaiming to Abram back in Genesis 12 was the gospel. Beforehand, he preached the gospel beforehand to Abram. The gospel that would come to light in Jesus Christ as he died, rose and pronounced blessing full and final on his people because of what he has done. That's how the gospel ends. It's how the church and the book of Acts and things begin. There's this um, stunning text in uh, Philippians 2. Paul writes, I've never gotten over it. I, I don't suppose I'll ever realize this, although I hope that maybe I'll grow more and more like it. Um, he talks about his ministry. This is verse 17 of Philippians 2. and He says this, Even if I am to be poured out, as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. You hear what he's saying? He's saying he exists to pour his life out for others. Oh, it's worship unto God. It's a drink offering. But it's sacrifice and blessing for you. That's the fundamental orientation. Something has changed in the Apostle Paul. It used to be all about his own righteousness. It used to be all about himself. Something changes in the Apostle Paul. And now he says, listen, I rejoice that my life is poured out like a drink offering for the sake of your faith, for your blessing. 
You say, well, how does that happen? How does a person start to live in that way? Well, it's because he knows the, the Jesus of the verses just prior. Let me read this to you, verses um, 3 through 8 of Philippians 2. He kind of gives a call, but he shows where all this is coming from. and Jesus that he now knows. Just listen to this. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves. And you say, well, how? How do we start to live like other people are more important than me? How do we start to live as if I am here to bless them rather than they are here to bless me? Where does that happen? He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He says, you want to know where you get this sort of life? It's by drawing near to this sort of God. And the one who comes in by his spirit and rearranges the heart. You let him bless you. You let him love you. You let him rescue you from yourself. And things start to reorient towards others. If you are truly engaging the Christ of the cross, if you are truly kneeling before him in that place, you don't get up from there and start making demands of others in your life. You start laying your life down. Now, I know anyone here is a sinner. The already not yet is, is upon us. We're in the tension. We're still fighting and all these things. So there you are. You know, after a long day of work, you're coming home. You remember what Nick said? Oh, goodness gracious. Now I feel convicted. Or there you are at work. Or there you are with your kids. and The, the temptation to say, man, you all need to get in line for my sake. If I have to yell, if I have to inflict wounds, if it gets something good for me, I will do it. You're tempted. There you are. What do you do? Do you try to dig in deep and, and, and be like Jesus? What would Jesus do? No, you're not going to find that strength in yourself. That's the point of the whole Old Testament. You can't, you can't accomplish your own rescue. Abram couldn't, Noah couldn't, David couldn't, Solomon couldn't. You can't. But Jesus can. And so you let those moments of temptation push you off the precipice of self-reliance. You fall back onto him. I've said this over and over again. Conversion and repentance and faith, it is not just a conversion kind of thing and then all goes well. It is a daily thing. As you are tempted with this, as you're going in that direction, as you're not trusting the one who loves you in this way and will protect you and keep you, even if you lay your life down, he will raise you up again from the dead. Even if you pour your life out like a drink offering, you think Paul thought that was lost for him. He thought it was gain. Because he knew the one who was keeping his reward. He knew the one who was going to raise him up immortal. And so you, you come back to him, man, I'm sorry, God, I'm wanting to do this. I'm wanting to lash with my tongue. I'm wanting to enslave. I'm wanting to exploit. Help me. And Jesus will be there to bless and help you bless others. Let's pray. God, thank you for, thank you for coming into our story. Man, we would have made it all about us. Authored by us, main character, here I am, star of the show, here I am. God, thank you that you saved us from that disaster. Thank you for your rescue. I pray that, that in this room right now, God, you would be convicting. And you'd be setting free, that you'd be blessing. That you'd move us towards the one who is rescued. You'd show us again who you are, what you've done, what you've said.
help us to truly engage, truly embrace, truly believe and trust. Holy Spirit, we can't do this without you. So what we want to be more than anything is your missionaries, your priests, royal priesthood, bringing blessing, the blessing of our Father, the gospel, the riches of the gospel to this world. In Jesus' name, amen.